0: This is Danny. And this is Molly. And this is Black Chick Lit, and we are very excited. We have a special guest for a special episode. It's June, it's Pride Month, and we decided to celebrate with author Kiana Alexander. Yay!
1: Yay! Hello. Hi, everybody. <laughs>
0: So I'm going to do a little brief bio, and then we're just going to jump into it. Again, we wanted to celebrate Pride, so I'm just going to get into it. So like any good Southern belle, Kiana Alexander wears many hats, stoning mother, advice dispensing sister, and ferocious reader. She has published more than 40 titles across romance, women's fiction, and historical genres. And her most recent title, Can't Let Her Go, is scheduled for release on June 20th. Ooh, Gemini. Can't Let Her Go is a friends-to-lover romance that follows Peaches and Jamie, two professional Black women, as they push past the boundaries of friendship into something deeper kiana's work has been featured in publishers weekly the new york times npr and essence magazine just to name a few she's also a speaker workshop facilitator and professional publication consultant who has spoken to audiences all over the united states she lives in the western u.s with her children her partner the world's highest maintenance cat and a precocious pup welcome kiana alexander hi everybody hi How have you been? So you got a book coming out June 20th. That's the part that I was like, kind of, as you said, that's the part I was freewheeling on. So hopefully that's all accurate. That is your most recent, that's the most recent book to come out. Yes, yes. That's my
2: next release. I was so excited this time to get the lesbian vibes to actually be released during Pride Month because last year when the first book came out, Can't Resist Her, I was kind of a little bit behind on my deadline. And so it ended up getting pushed to July and I was like super bummed. (laughs) <laughs> but this year we're able to like make it work. So it actually coming out during pride month. So I'm really excited about that. That's awesome.
0: And that's kind of what we want to talk about. We want to talk about, you know, what it's like to be a black woman and what pride means to you. So we have a couple of questions, but you know how we like to do we like to be chill. We kind of like to be casual. It's a conversation. So, but I guess we'll just start and say like for you as a black woman, what does pride mean to you? Cause I think there's been a lot of like debate and discussion over like like keep cops out. Like what pride means. Like commercialization, the whole thing with Target and like pride washing. What do they they call it? Something where it's like corporate. Where it's just corporate. Yeah, sell everything. Yeah, um, rainbow washing. <laughs> yes. So from your perspective, what does pride mean and why is it important? So
2: a history nerd. I've been a history nerd my entire life. So I look at it from the perspective of the way it started as something that was very much a protest, something that was meant to be sort of a set piece of revolution. So, in a historical context, you know, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson and Tonya McVarney, all the people that were at Stonewall on that fateful night and the bricks crashing through the window, it's very much, you know, the vibes of how it all started. And when I think of it now, super late in life and coming out, I didn't come out until I was 36. And there's a lot of like sort of religious programming and cultural things that happen in the Southern United States where I was raised and a lot of different factors that sort of go into that. So for me personally, I think of pride not only as something that was a protest and a revolution in the past, it continues to be that today, but also something that's really about self-acceptance at its core and self-love, which goes beyond self-acceptance. And when you think about the fact that even just as a Black person, but especially as a queer person, things are sort of baked into society, American society, that would disallow or discourage that sort of self-acceptance and self-love that even if you don't get out and protest or march or go to a bribe parade or any of that, just the fact that you are able to reach a point of accepting and loving yourself for who you are, despite what society has to say about it, is a revolutionary act in itself. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I think what you said it's especially important in terms of like the Black community intersecting with that because that's just another group that's been told that not to call up the word pride but to not be proud of who you are. Yeah, there's so many layers to that and it's like when I see sort of the
2: homophobia that exists inside of the Black community like that is really something that I think has to be addressed. It's just I think it's holding us back as a people and I think It's like any other wound that needs healing. If you just leave it open, don't cleanse it and let it fester, it's only going to get worse. It's only going to cause pain. So a healing I think has to happen there.
0: Mm -hmm. If you mind sharing, you said you came out very late at 36. Do you mind sharing sort of like your story and how you came to find yourself? Sure. I was married pretty young. Um, As I said, like I grew up with a really religious
2: family and that was church was sort of very much like a part of my life in that like as early as I can remember, I was always there. Like I was like sort of forced and voluntold to do things to church. So I was everything from an usher, a praise dancer, I sang it, I don't know how many choirs. Um, I think that's probably the one thing that is like what feels like a good memory to me from church is the fact that I can sort of separate the parts in a song when I'm listening. I'm like, oh, they're singing alto. That kind of thing is probably my most positive memory of that time, but it was very much um, ingrained in me from an early age that, you know, the expectation was you're a girl, you're going to grow up, you're going to go to college, mostly to find a husband. You're going to find a husband, have 2.5 children and a dog and buy a house. And that is the key to happiness. And there's no other way. And so, Being the person that I was when I was young, I was really shy and awkward, but very much invested in gaining the approval of my parents and my family members. And so I just sort of followed the path that had been laid out before me without really spending any time considering how I felt about it, like what was inside of me at my core. I never really gave myself the time, or the space to even really consider it well. And so I ended up getting married right before I turned 20. So, I was married pretty early, and it was very much a situation where the person that I was married to is still one of my best friends. I mean, generally a great person. And part of the reason that it seemed like the right thing to do was there were not a lot of safe men in my circle, but I considered him to be a safe man. I knew that he was a kind and caring person. And so it was like, okay, well, if I have to marry a man, like, like this is probably the way to go with this but I think I knew how I felt from a very early age. I think probably when I looked back the first time that I realized I had a crush on a girl I was probably like seven and I remember just this sort of feeling of just obsession with her like I wanted to dress like her and watch the same shows that she watched and like whatever she liked I was suddenly into and I remember I would come home every day and tell my mom oh you know, she said this today or she wore this color today. I want something to sew it or blah, 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 blah. And this went on for about a week or so before my mom was like, honey, I think it's so sweet that you have a little friend. I don't need to hear everything she does. <laughs> and that sort of was a cue to me like, oh, I'm doing too much. Like this isn't, this isn't welcome. And that was sort of where I kind of learned that it was something to be ashamed of. It was something to be hidden away. So I never really took the time to sort of sit with that until well into my thirties, probably about a year or two before I came out, I got with my current therapist who was, I've had, you know, therapists ever since my twenties, but she was the first one who was like me, like she was my age. She's a black woman. Like she had similar experiences, like generationally to me, typically my therapist had either been white or they had been much older and very steeped in religion um, because the last time I had a black therapist before her was an older woman who was always like, oh honey, just pray about it. The Lord, take care of it. And I had I divested from Christianity long before I got to the point of coming out because there for me wasn't any peace to be found there. I never felt peace at an altar inside of a church. The one I had my own altar and I could sit with my ancestors, and I felt any type of peace at an altar. So I had sort of started with My therapist in like 2017, I was like, we got to work on several different things. Um, But I think what top of mind were like childhood trauma and imposter syndrome. So we worked through a few things over the course of that first year. And then as we started to move beyond those things, you know, it was sort of a conversation between me and my therapist where she was like, you know, we're going to have to eventually address the fact that you're probably not. And here's me sitting on the therapy couch like, I don't know, (laughs) she can tell oops like i thought i was good at hiding this but a trained professional can spot these sorts of things and so that led to like a whole series of conversations with her and once we kind of got to the bottom of it then i had to go and you know i thought that the right thing to do was to tell my husband first because he was as i said my best friend and the person closest to me and i felt he had a right to know mm-hmm. as you know my spouse so i came out to him first, and then it was sort of a long process of going through, sort of deciding who I wanted to talk to about it, who I didn't want to talk to about it, who was probably about to, you know, go ghost protocol from my life, uh, who was about to be airdropped out of my life by me, because I didn't want to deal with, you know, foolishness. And it took me several months to like, from the time that I told him in the spring, I didn't tell my parents until, I think, November of that year. So it was months in between when I told him all the things that I sort of experienced in the meantime and when I actually told my parents because I was sort of terrified that they wouldn't accept it but I found that a lot of the things that I went through in terms of religion and sort of the things I was made to do weren't necessarily because my parents were sort of in religion because church seemed like a safe place for me to be and they actually reacted a lot better um, to it than I expected they would so that was a, a great reach to me but they distant relatives and people that I don't talk to much and people that I just don't generally white that don't, you know, I never like said anything to them. I mean, if they follow me on Twitter, it's pretty obvious there, but uh, like I never had a conversation with them. And so it was just like a a whole journey of sort of coming to terms with it, talking to the people I felt was important for them to know, and then sort of just taking those, those next steps, which were really scary. We ended up, my husband and I ended up separating, although... It was kind of bumpy at the beginning. Over time, we've reached something really amicable that is reflective of the friendship that we started out with because we've known each other since we were like literal kids, like eight, nine years old. I used to climb trees as a kid. So but that that probably should have been a clue. I didn't want to play with dolls and stuff at the time I wanted to climb trees. Yeah. So we were fast friends because we had similar interests, you know, anime, things like that. So like we still vibe on that. And I just sort of had to, you know, step out and do something I never ever I'd never lived on my own I went straight from home to the dorm to be somebody's wife I had to you know go out get an apartment I was like what is even I don't even know what you do to get a lease I'm 36 I feel like you know a country rube coming into the city for the first time and then sort of establishing myself like dating I had never dated I'd known this person since I was eight we dated through high school and college got married like I'm just like, what do I do? And of course, my sister, my dear sweet sister Erica, who is a licensed practical nurse and just sort of the bane of my existence for growing up. So I was always kind of chasing after her. And she's like the wild child. I'm like, Erica, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. My sister's by we already knew that. But it was like, I don't I don't know how to date. What do you what do you do? What, what do we even do now? And she was like, just get a tender. <laughs> like <laughs> I always thought of Tinder, and that was sort of how I started, like putting myself out there, mm-hmm. like to date, because I was craving this experience, but didn't know how to access it because I had literally no, no frame of reference. Yeah, so that okay. was just sort of how, yeah, it was, yeah, Tinder was an experience. <laughs> wow, I was like, geez, Louise, people, people be horny, don't they? Wow, it's <laughs> a out there a lot going on on that app so I got <laughs> off of there as quickly as possible because I was like oh, nice nah, it's, it's a little bit much like everybody like <laughs> everybody yeah. trying to figure out how to set it up so that like men couldn't see me that was like like that cut my notifications down a lot thank god but like <laughs> even when it was just down to women I was getting like so many like the swipes because she had me on like a Tinder Gold so I could see everybody who liked me. And I was like, oh, these people like me? Oh, you're paying for premium. <laughs> That's like, funny. geez, like, oh my gosh, <laughs> no idea. So it was at the same time a confidence booster and like a really weird introduction to like the current TV world. But like getting through that period was like bumpy and crazy, like riding a roller coaster. But it sort of had to happen because I was never going to get to the place where I felt like myself until I sort of went through and experienced it.
1: Wow. I mean, thank you for sharing, you know, that really personal history with us. I'd love to ask, you know, how what role identity plays in your work, you know, given your history, and in the context of so many queer stories being filtered through kind of a white, even if, like, let's say a person of color story, they have a white, mm-hmm. you know, partner or you're learning things. So I feel like sometimes, you know, stories that are just about us are not as, I don't know, that's my perception. Like, if you feel that to be true. They're not as widely accepted or as widely seen, even though we know they exist.
2: Yeah, I think. Just from my experience in the industry, that's definitely true. Like from the publishing side of it, like the stories that are getting published and getting sort of the push and publicity and stuff like that are definitely pretty modest. Like when I started with Amazon Montlate, who publishes my queer books, they reached out to Sarah Younger, who's my agent. They reached out to her asking after me, writing lesbian books for them. Which delighted me to know if it, it was completely out of the blue and unexpected, but it was like, this is a chance for me to sort of break another barrier because I had done this once before back in 2017 when I sold my R&B slash Black Greek themed romance series to Source Books to be under their Casa Blanca line. And that was their first Black romance. They had published books by Black authors before, but never romances. Um, and they published Three books in that series, and part of the reason I did it—it it was definitely not for the money because the money was not great—but it was the idea that I could be the first at this, and the idea that I could open up the door for somebody else who wanted to do it. And so when they reached out to me saying, you know, they had published, you know, like Rachel Lacey, and I was going like, oh, for all these other lesbian romances, but they had never published any with black leads. And they thought that I was the person to do it. I mean, I was of course flattered by that, but I saw sort of that same opportunity coming up again, to sort of break down a barrier that existed so that somebody else could then move into this space that we hadn't occupied before. And so that was kind of my approach going into it. I mean, the, the offer was way more money, and like I feel like they didn't, like they didn't lowball me. Some of the paper that for that Sarah, Sarah is just. As sweet as pot, she comes to North Carolina just like, I do. But in business negotiations, mm, no, don't play with her. So I think you now when they come to her, not to come with her with no, you know, low in the gutter offer or she's just going to like ignore them. Part of the that goes to her. But I was really impressed with the way that they approached me, how respectful it was. And during the editing process, how much freedom that I was given. Um, because in a lot of other cases, I was told to kind of tone down the blackness Up until, and that happened a lot with me at, you know, that big publishing house that puts out all those books and romance. That happened a lot up until I got to Desire. Because when I got to Desire and they asked me to write for them, I told them from the beginning. I was like, I have an idea for a series set in Atlanta that's based around a hip hop recording studio. And it is going to be filled to the brim with history and references about Southern hip hop. We're giving all the flowers to Organized Noise, to Jazzy Faye, to Lil John, to Two Chains, to everything that comes out of it that makes up that sound because it has been so formative for me. Mm-hmm. And this series will be black as fuck. If that's not what you want, you need to walk <laughs> away now. Okay. Cause I will not tone it down. I will not dial it back. So if that's not what you're looking for, then go somewhere else. And they said,
1: okay. I mean, yeah. <laughs> That confirms a suspicion, I feel like, that we've had for a long time. That sometimes, I think about the girl who went on a trip and she's like, I just bought my hair dryer with us, with me. Mm -hmm. It's like, what do you do with that? And I think that's a complaint that we've had. Yeah, it's like, these characters Mm -hmm. do not feel Black. I think that segues into our next question, Danny. if you want to take it.
0: Yeah, so, it does, actually, because I, first of all, I can't believe someone was bold enough to say these characters are too black that's pretty audacious a little too black well yeah. too cultural <laughs> a little of, yeah I'm like what does that mean hmm. so um but right. like from what you've in the publishing world in the writing world from what you observed how has like i guess the landscape i hate using that word but i can't think of another word but like how has like the landscape changed for like telling queer stories i also don't know if i can use the word queer i feel like that's one of those words i feel like i can't use but telling lgbtq stories how do you feel it's changed do you feel like they're is more representation is it equal are like are we seeing all of one story and does it feel genuine because sometimes I feel like you know we'll get these publishers and they'll push a few books and it's like it's like this is it this is our black book this is our gay Mm -hmm. book this is our you know like next book but it doesn't feel genuine so have what have you kind of noticed in publishing since you've been writing and working in this space well
2: one thing about me is I'm, I'm an observer by nature and I pay attention to sort of the way in which the processes have been carried out. And I feel like it's sort of a mixed bag. It's like a slow climb up the hill in terms of like the progress that's being made. Like I definitely see it happening. And I think it's mostly genuine. But the times when it's not... It's because it's coming from the top down when the people in the corporate office of the publishing house are like, oh, boy, we're getting all these angry letters. we got to publish some of the gay stuff or they're going to, you know, stop buying books and we like money. You can tell the difference between when it's coming down like that and when it's editorial, when there are people in the editorial department who care about these types of stories, who relate to them, who can see the gap in the market outside of what it means to them financially that's when it becomes something that has value to it and I feel like that was the way I was approached by Montlake not because it was like a box for them to check but because they realized that they had been wrong in not seeking these kinds of stories up until now they weren't really getting enough submissions but they weren't seeking them either. So this was the time when they were like, okay, if we're not getting what we're looking for, then we need to look harder. So you can tell, you know, as you're going through the process, you know, editorial marketing and stuff, how you're spoken to, the things they're willing to do and the things that they're not, where it comes from. And if it's coming from corporate, trying to check the box, it's not going to hit the same And when your editors have respect and passion and, you know, real concern for what it is that you're trying to do, that's when you get those really great books out there. And it it gives people a window to get into what, for the most part, is a really mysterious and closed off world. A lot of people who are just like never written anything before, who are casual readers, have no idea the kind of things that go on inside of publishing And some of that is by design. So when you're stepping into that world and you don't even see an entry point for yourself in a sort of the level of submissions you're going to get, because some people aren't even going to try. Why would you submit a book like this to a publisher who's never ever published anything like that? What would make you think they would accept it? So there has to be sort of a change in perception. Some of them are going about it for one reason, and some of them are going about it for another. And you can genuinely tell why they're going about it. And I think one of the things that's good is that publishers are starting to hire more queer editors, which is also going to make a big difference because the whole I can't relate to this will then be eliminated. So, I think that is like basically what's happening like as I see it. Like the progress is happening. It's a lot slower than I want it to be, but I'm seeing it happening. And it's like even at you know even for the ones who are kind of reluctant to do it when they see the kind of things that are happening in the indie space there's no way that they can say yeah there's no way they can stay doing things the way they used to or they're just going to lose out to the indie authors because they're out there killing it
0: that's what i was going to kind of ask a follow-up that wasn't on the list was like it seems like indie really kind of leads the way with any kind of diversity in terms of you know, telling stories, whether it be you know, race, religion or sexuality. And it seems like I mean it seems like the indie space is much more progressive than the traditional traditional pub. And I know you said you were with Amazon, and I don't know if that's considered indie or traditional or not.
2: Well, Mott Lake is an arm of Amazon publishing, so for that it's it's a traditional house. But I do have um, like independent books that I distribute myself like KDP. But I think the reason it's like that is because indie was for a while the catch-all for all the people who were not having any type of success getting into traditional publishing and were getting frustrated. Now, I think now it's more of a choice that people are making when they start out writing because they're choosing to have more control creatively and with marketing and things like that. Um. So they're choosing to publish independently. But for a long time, it was the catch all for the things that were like not able to be fit into a box inside of a publishing house. And that's sort of why they have always been at the forefront of things when it comes to like the next new trend or what's going to become popular or what's going to fill in a gap that's missing in the market. Yeah. Because publishers are very big on like this whole crystal ball thing where they sort of believe the thing sells. They should just publish as many other things exactly like that thing as possible. And then that's going to keep everybody wealthy and make sure there's gas in the yacht and all that. Mm-hmm. So that tendency to lean towards what's familiar rather than what could be, you know, spectacular is
1: why it ends up like that. Yeah, they seem more reactive. Yeah, definitely. That's another perfect transition. Like, I don't know if you're like a professional. <laughs> like, PR all that stuff. <laughs> But uh, one trend that I think we see, you know, a lot of MLM books, especially a romance and fewer with WLW romances. And as an author, I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts on why this might be or what are some barriers that you have faced? Um, uh, Well,
2: my thought on why this is, this is going to surprise you now. Hold on to your seats, Patriarch. If men are doing it, if men are doing it, the assumption is that they're doing it better or somehow superior to what women are doing. And that's sort of where I think that comes from. And I know even a lot of the audience for like the male-male romance is women. And I think part of that is because for such a long time, that was the only choice. If you weren't interested in necessarily reading a cis-head pairing, you were going to end up reading male-male because they're wasn't much female female to be found, and it became sort of a habit, like to seek that out because that was all there was for such a long time. I think that definitely plays a part in it, and the fact that when you look at the landscape of like the executive level management of publishing houses is still dominated mostly by yeah. men. This sort of reflects their own identity as like. This white men, I think that plays into it as well. But I think some of it has to do with sort of like self fulfilling prophecy. If you keep seeing the same thing play out, you think that's all that there is. That's all that can be accepted. And so I think for a long time, authors who are writing female romances were either just not bothering to submit at all, or were submitting and getting rejected. Mm-hmm. So that probably led to a lot of frustration. Some of them would just quit and some of them would probably go into the indie space. But I think that's why there's such a glut of like male-male romance. I mean, some of it is even being written by women and some of them probably felt that that was the only way they were end to when it came to writing something that wasn't, you know, just a heterosexual pairing. That's starting to change too, to a degree. I see a lot more female-female romances like lately than I have in years past. But because of the glut of male-male, it's going to take a while for it to get up to that same level.
0: Yeah, That's what I was going to ask and sort of follow up with, is like, have you noticed it getting better? And I guess we don't even just have to include, like, um male-male or, you know, women, female-female. Like, also, it seems to be more non-binary and trans-inclusive stories. But it still seems like if you find yeah. a story that's LGBTQ nine times out of 10, it's usually two white. Sometimes one of them will be of color, but usually yeah. two white, gay men and that seems to be like as you said the glut is the perfect word that seems to be the what's mostly out there and i don't want to discredit what is out there i don't want people think like because people can sometimes and like say like there's nothing out there i'm not saying there's nothing but it seems like that's what the majority of it is when you go out there and so i've also kind of noticed it seems like it's it's getting a little bit better and there's some more but it still does not seem to be at the pace that which yeah Yeah. And because of like the long lead on Tread, like
2: it takes a year to 18 months to get the book from conception to actually getting it on the shelves. Mm -hmm. Like that also adds like like the lack because there might be some more that are sort of in the funnel now, but it's going to be a while before we actually see them on the shelf because they have to go through that long process. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Kind of shifting on this, we would like, are there any books or are there any authors who like when you think about maybe your own personal writing or your own personal identity who have sort of made an impact so i guess this not that big of a difference from the shout out part of the section but like were there any yeah. titles who you think that you think are like maybe like not necessary required reading but something in that vein like these are the books that like you think people who want to learn more about black you know what it's like to be black and female and queer are there any books or titles or authors you think people should read you also of course are allowed to shout out yourself we always are here for Self promotions too. But.
2: Well, yeah, definitely. We can't resist her and can't let her go. In the same way that I was intentional with desire about what I was going to do in making that series really black, I told not like the same thing. The series is about to be black as fuck. I wanted to put it in a different type of setting, uh, which is why I chose Austin because I kind of, I kind of like their keep it weird vibe. That's like the city motto. I kind of like that spent a lot of time sort of tooling around the city, walking downtown through like the the gay district and seeing the clubs and all the little boutiques and stuff. And it was just like a really cool vibe that felt very like welcoming to me. And so that's why I decided to set it. But I was very intentional about, you know, all the characters and this big friend group being Black. They would all have different sexual identities, but they were all going to be Black. And so that was sort of how I approached that. But I would say, like, for me as a reader, I really enjoyed books by Rebecca Weatherspoon. Mm -hmm. And I think that Treasure, which is one of her shorter lesbian titles, was probably the first, like, lesbian romance that I ever read. And I really enjoyed that one. It's not like a super complex story. Some of Rebecca's books, like, really dig into stuff. BDSM and all kinds of (laughs) neat stuff. Treasure is a little more approachable. That's kind of why I started there in terms of, like, there's not a lot of like teen or like a lot of like heavy backstory or anything like that, but it's just a really sweet story about this special connection between these two young women. Um, and I picked up probably sort of my entry into it. So it's like a special place in my heart for that one. I also really loved uh, this book called Things Hoped for by Chintz C. Higgins. I was sort of familiar with her and her work, like I knew her name and stuff. And I just mm-hmm. was sort of rolling. Amazon and I saw this book cover and it was literally, I was drawn in by the cover. There was like this fine ass stud on the cover and I was like, mm, I don't know what this is about, but I'm about to read this. And it was really, really good. And then there was another short called Being Hospitable by Mika James that I really enjoyed. Also really approachable, really steamy. There was a little bit of sort of conflict in it and it was one of those sort of your best friends. Sister type of vibes where it's like you you feel like you can't because oh that's my homie sister but the attraction just can't be put to the side just like really at me and held my attention I, that was one of those I kind of regret sitting because I was just like locked in and of course we got to talk about Devon and Chris playing a wedding like come on now that's another one of Chintia's more recent ones got to get that and Fiona Z uh, in the indie space Fiona Z is killing it on the black lesbian vibes. Like she has got so much good stuff. I really enjoyed them like her. And she's got one stud like her. Like she's got all of this good stuff. Like Fiona Zed's entire catalog is just like vibes. Like get into everything that Fiona Zed is doing. So those have been like some of my like super top favorites. I've been kind of devouring a lot of it just to kind of get Kind of catch up with what I feel like I've been missing Mm -hmm. now that I'm starting to work published. and hopefully this trend is gonna continue. And it's gonna have to continue and go hard in order to like fix the imbalance that we have going on here. And so I mean that of course need more work for me too because I'm like I gotta I gotta be I gotta be writing every day because we gotta fill in this gap, man. Can't have the people out here suffering. (laughs) (laughs) They're hungry.
1: Yes. <laughs> I wanted to ask you know as you're out here creating and filling these gaps and we're talking kind of about you know almost interpersonal or intergroup dynamics as like you said we're going still a progress unfortunately in the past two years there's been so much backlash and so much hatred especially in the book section like we see in teenies movies but yeah. Nothing seems to reach the fever pitch that books do, banned books do. And I wanna know your thoughts, but I'd love to hear like what that feels like to you as an author trying to do the work, trying to fill these gaps when there's so much discussion about should this even this should I, and just vitriol. I like I can't imagine like has the difficulty of trying as yeah. a lack as a everything, like just coming down on you when you're just trying to write and get paid right
2: yeah and I mean this kind of crosses over into the other arms of my business because as a speaker and lecturer I spend a lot of time talking to young people sometimes in like the college or university setting but every spring since like 2016 I've been doing like school tours where I go to high schools local high schools and talk to the students usually it's an English class or a history class. Sometimes I get like a club, like once I had like a minority achievement club um, or creative writing club or something like that. But that's something that I like pro bono, because I think it's important. Um, something that my mentor sort of instilled in me and a lot of the other girls that she mentored, I'm talking about the super awesome, magnificent, their you know, when asked what we could do to sort of repay her for what she gave us, in terms of that love and mentorship, the sort of soft place that she gave us as you know, writers come up in a business that uh, just be hating on us and in return. She said that what we could do for her was to pass it on to the next generation. So this is sort of how I go about that, going into the schools to talk. And around the time that Carolina Built came out last year, which was my historical fiction novel, which got a lot of uh, press and sort of got me to a lot of spaces that had ignored me or just outright dismissed me when I was writing romance, it sort of let me access a whole new audience, and so there were a lot more requests last year. Um, actually, I just down because I just couldn't get to them all before the semester was out except so with the spring. Um, but that feeling, knowing that Can't Resist Her was coming out in just a few months of going into the schools, um, especially here in North Carolina, and talking to those high school students, and being able to look and physically see, obviously, there are kids sitting here. And knowing that because of, you know, the rules and regulations about the school districts that I could not mention that book, even though that was coming up, that was my next release. So when people asked me what my next release was, it was just like, oh, well, you know, it's another romance. It's not related to this. I felt a certain level of, I don't know, it was sort of sad to me because, yes, I was there to talk about um, Josephine Leary and the remarkable things that she accomplished. And I think that's something that everybody about. But I also felt like it was a disaster to those kids because they deserve to feel seen as well. And the fact that I had to sort of monitor what I like, even when I go into school now, I have to be careful about what I wear, how I'm dressed, you know, how my makeup is, you know, I have to be careful of that because sometimes it's a teacher, sometimes it's a parent, sometimes it's a student or someone, you know, working in the school who will have something to say about it. Oh, you know, you're indoctrinating and all this type of stuff. And I have to take certain courses of action to sort of circumvent that when I'm going specifically into the high schools. It's not really an issue at the college level, but the high schools have been, it's been a really odd duality of being really excited about what I'm talking about historically and being able to sort of give them idea that they can become a published author. Because a lot of the schools that I go to are filled with students of color and they may be disadvantaged. Sometimes I'll go to like alternative schools and things like that where they generally don't get any visitors. And they haven't had anybody who looks like me come and speak to them about publishing. So I feel like that's really important to do and I love doing it and I always get something great out of it. The kids are amazing and brilliant and so aware of everything going on around them. But I feel also a certain sadness that I can't bring them, even the fullness of myself, because of what's happening societally and politically around them so that's been really difficult for me I go one of the places that I go every single year is to Hillside High School in Durham um in Durham, North Carolina where I went to school back in the 90s and going back and standing on the drama stage because I go back there because of my drama teacher high, at Hillside High School for 35 years in the drama department um, just, I mean just recently retired this is the first year that I went that there was another teacher and it was because it was somebody he handpicked. He he was very passionate about that program and wanted to make sure it went to the right hands. But going back to that same classroom that I was in in 1996, so standing on that stage and looking at whatever young person is sitting in the seat that I sat in. And sometimes that's a queer kid. What are you going to say? Like, I mean, you can't, there's so many things that I want to say that I can't, but I try to do my best to, encourage them and sort of offer them sort of a hopeful picture of what their future can be while simultaneously tamping down my own sad feelings about it. It, it, It's really difficult
0: and I really hope to see it change. That's such a wild experience because it's one thing to know you write a book and to know schools can't or not or not can't won't talk about it. It's another thing to be in the school yourself and want to share this book you want to write and feeling like you have to hold part of yourself back because of this like weird push to ban books that children can access anyway i don't i it's so it's so wild i don't really fully understand the like a lot of the librarians are super frustrated by yes i'm sure they are so because librarians have that same strand of energy that like journalists do and it's like the freedom of information and let people access things let them read things let let the babies read so it's wild right yeah Yeah. I've had a lot of conversations
2: with school librarians who are just like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. Like, in a minute, there aren't going to be any. in here.
0: Like, in your opinion, like, what's one of the best ways, like, I don't have kids, I don't really interact with my school district, but, like, what's some of the ways that, like, average readers can support authors who are being impacted by, like, these bans, or maybe not impacted by the bans, but to support, you know, queer authors, Black authors, marginalized authors? And I know, like, some of the obvious things are, like, buying books, but I would really love to hear, since we did talk about library, are there other ways that are maybe less obvious than buying the books? Like, do we underestimate the power of requesting things at the library? Like, are there things that maybe we're not thinking about that could yes. help really help support authors? Yes, because um, the, the thing about libraries,
2: depending on the size of the system, that's always a multi-book order. Depending on the size of the library system and their patron population, you could be talking about selling anywhere from maybe 20 books to 300 books or 1,000 books in one in one order for a really big library system so they can distribute a certain number of copies among all their branches. When you request a book from the library, it's not just coming to that branch. You're not just going to order one copy because you asked for it. They're going to order enough for the system in most cases. So that ends up being a lot of royalty income um, for authors. And that's why even early in my career, one of the first things that I did was to build relationships, direct personal relationships with librarians. I mean, I love librarians as a general rule. When I was a kid growing up and, you know, the environment in which I was raised was not necessarily ideal. Like my parents loved me and they did the absolute best they could given the situation, but it wasn't always safe or ideal for me. Libraries were a safe haven for me. Mm-hmm. Librarians were people who didn't know me, but always took time out to show me care. And so I have a special place in my heart for librarians and teachers. So I've spent a lot of time talking to them until I understand sort of how this works. So it it definitely is one of the things that I recommend when I'm asked questions like this is that like the first place to start is requesting books from the library. And some of them have, you know, ways that you can go onto the library's website. You don't even have to get out of your pajamas and just fill out a form online um, and submit Um, And if you have like if you're in one of those places where you might have a county library system and then maybe you have a county library system, one county over requested at the next county too, because on a statewide level, as they start to see requests coming in, then you're starting to look at even bigger orders because now they're like, oh, the interlibrary loan system. So now they need a really big order so that they can ferry copies out to those small rural counties that don't have the same budget as the bigger counties. So in a lot of ways, requesting a book from the library makes a lot of sense. And if you're in a library book club, like you just double down on that power because they're gonna order the book club sets. And those are always multiple copies. So that's definitely one of the first first ways that I would suggest doing things that obviously find the books. And then chatting them up on social media is always super helpful. Like this last week or so, my Instagram has been going crazy with like book bloggers and readers, reviewers who have either gotten ARCs of can't let her go or who are just like chomping at the bit for it to come out. And they're sharing all these like their book stack videos and, you know, their reviews of the first book of blog posts that have like all the queer books that are coming out this month, getting a lot of tags and inbox messages and stuff. And I mean, that just feels good to me as an author, because I know that people are interested and they're excited about it. But that's also sort of a, an offshoot of word of mouth in this technological you know, time that we live in. A lot of the word of mouth now is happening online. It's happening on Instagram and TikTok and all of that. So those types of interactions online are still really important in terms of like driving sales and sort of getting people invested so they'll leave reviews and things like that so that's also really helpful i've also heard from a lot of readers who are like really shy and they're like oh i super love this book but i never know if it's like weird contact the author and say that absolutely it is not weird like always do that i never open up my inbox and see somebody saying oh i loved your book and i'm like oh no that sucks no That's always awesome. Like, I've never been upset by that. It never gets old. Like, I could hear this continuously on a loop every moment of the day, and I would never get tired of it. Like, DM me. Like, I leave most of my social media stuff open for that reason. Yeah, I get a lot of weirdos, but (laughs) it's worth waiting for weirdos to get those one or two that are like, oh, I read this book and I super loved it. So don't hold back on that because people who hate the book, trust and believe me. They're going to be all up beyond the internet telling anybody who will listen how terrible they thought it was. And sometimes if they're really bold, they'll come to your event tell you to your face that they hate it Ooh. and all the reasons why you shouldn't have written it. No. Like I had a couple weeks ago. That was oh, fun. People are just audacious. Yeah. That no was, home training. I think what? They really are. and They really are. And I'm like, this one was like not related to any of my queer books, thank goodness, but I was doing an event at a library system attached to Carolina Bill, where I had sort of gone to talk about Leary's historical impact. And it was the start of like a teen series that that library system is doing, and it's gonna run like from May 19th all the way through June 19th. So I was sort of like opening it and they built like a hall for people to come and listen to me speak, and then um, went to the library afterwards. For like a book signing, um, and so you know, this lady was sitting all the way in the back, like two seats away from like the back door where you can come and go. And you know, this woman was an elder of the chalk, and it's like I kind of see her from the back because she was sitting off by herself, kind of watching me during the whole talk and just kind of like eyeballing me like for any of this. But she came for whatever reason, and. I gave my talk talked about, you know, all the things that Mrs. Leary had accomplished, her impact on me and how I tried to carry the impact too through by going to the, the schools and telling the kids about her. I mean the kids that go to the school two blocks down from her signature property didn't even know that J.N. Leary would let alone that she was black. And so I, how I feel it's important for me to do that and like while I was saying that talking about the kids and you know how how much i love going to do that and how they're always so awesome and smart like a lady in the front was like literally sobbing into a handkerchief so i'm like oh i'm doing good i'm hitting today <laughs> so we get to the question and answer and this lady cannot wait to put her hand up she's like the first person when the librarian's like oh she'll take questions now her hands shoots shoot them just shoot them she got something to say she got to get it off her chest. and i'm like yes ma'am what would you like to say and she's like well you know, I've read this book twice. I mean, two different book clubs, the library. And I wasn't impressed with it. You know, I just feel like, you know, there's a lot of like violence happening. You know, this is the 1800s in North Carolina. There's a lot of violence happening towards the black people. And you didn't write any of it in there. And I feel like it's just, it's fake. It's like a romance novel. And then you said you wrote romance. So I guess that's why. But it's just, I just, I
0: mean, are you
2: telling people about the bad, I mean, there's fights and, I mean, lynchings and. And rapes and God knows. I mean, they're always, why'd you put it in the book? And and I'm just standing there. like, And I could see every eye in this auditorium going like this to the side. Nobody wanted to turn around and look at her. But everybody was kind of looking in that direction in the periphery like, she's still talking, isn't she? She, she, You hear her. I'm not having a stroke. She's saying this out loud. Mm -hmm. Everybody's face is cracked. But nobody's is more cracked than the librarian because she's there. Like, it's obvious she's embarrassed. I mean, the librarian was white, too. So I, she's like, you making us all look bad. Like, you can see her face is being like... <laughs> and she just kept going on and on. And I, I, mean, no, I understand why you didn't put it. And when she finally stopped, I was like, well, ma'am, let me explain my decision. I did portray violence in an allegorical way. I used rotten tomato flesh, which looks a lot like brain matter and guts, to depict violence that was carried out on Black people because I wasn't really interested and rehashing what a lot of us already know about what was happening to us. I was interested in showing this file in a way that did not trigger my black readers.
0: Yeah. Mm
2: And she couldn't, you know, like I've had a lot of book clubs that understood the allegory apparently to get it, but that is what that was about. That's what that's about. Mm -hmm. And she just kept, she just started, well, why don't you talk about this particular incident and blah, 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 blah. until finally, like you could tell, like what I was saying was just not, It was just going right over her head. She wasn't taking it into it, she wasn't listening because she considered herself my better. But when the librarian Mm -hmm. stuck up her hand and was like, I disagree in that very tone, and sort of said basically what I had said. Then she hushed up. Mm -hmm. And I was Mm -hmm. just like um, and if we with this whole question answered it first, but like as soon as they were dismissed to go back to for me to take a break and for them to go to the library to wait for the signing to start. Like, in two seconds, this lady, is probably eight years old. Her hair was fully white, and she probably crawled from the sewer next to Pennywise to drive across town and insult me <laughs> to my face. This lady skated so fast, you would have thought she had on some rocket boots or something. <sighs> like, she was gone out of the door as soon as they were dismissed, because I couldn't even get out in the first two steps off the stage before sis had disappeared yeah I bet. and I was just mm-hmm. like because I was going that way and I, the librarian was like oh my god I'm so sorry that lady always acts like this at book events but she's the most combative when the author is black and I was just like <sighs> she was like you know what she's a warm body and she comes to everything we put on but I'm about to go to my manager right now and tell her to ban that lady because yeah ridiculous and she was like, "I hope you don't think that's how everybody is here." I was like, "No, it's literally just her. Like, you're like like a teacher. I don't blame this teacher for how the kids act. I'm not gonna blame me for how your pages act." But it's like she literally went through all that effort just to come and tell me how she didn't approve of what I wrote. And yes, she like, read the book twice. And she she bought bought twice. Did she I'm buy like, it? Did she buy it? And you bought it? Did she buy it? Did oh, she buy two too? copies? The book club bought mm-hmm. it. So I'm like, well, I got paid. So I mean. Wow, but yeah, <laughs> I asked cool. the librarian after the fact, like like I was like, did did my face crack at any moment because i I feel like I've gotten pretty good at like the poker face and the professional interaction. She was like for so, like a hot second, you had this look on your face, but then you fixed it and went on with the professional answer, but I could tell that she was you know, she was stepping on your nerves, and I was like, were it not for the spirit? Of my dear and sweet departed grandmother, who was a pistol herself, standing behind me on that stage and saying, Do not into my ears. I would have died off on that stage and had sis by that week. Because that's what I wanted to do. Because it was extremely
0: disrespectful. Yes. Like the boldness of it. That's so wild. I feel like you could do a whole episode on just what it's like to be an author in the live space. Because I think there was a thread that went viral. This is an aside. There was a thread that went viral. A woman was sharing one of her, like she had an experience and no one showed up. And then a whole bunch of authors shared their experiences where they had meet and greets and no one showed up. And it's like, I feel like this is just a repeated thing I hear. There's the writing part of the author job and then there's everything else. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people romanticize the writing part and they kind of just skim over the everything else. And I feel like that would be an interesting. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes especially if you're writing things that kind of push against like like you're writing queer love stories or you're you're romance in general you're writing sex you're writing oh yeah you know, about black people you probably get it to a degree that others like you know the jonathan Franzen's and all of them are not getting it at so oh that's right. Oh. right i've already done battle with like the the mystery
2: and the literary writers and stuff who think romance is not real literature i've already done battle with the racists who don't like that I'm writing black stories
0: and the crudes who don't like that I'm writing sex. And I got to deal with the homophobes. <laughs> like, <Yes>. come on. <laughs> yeah, it's wild. But um, I did want to kind of like spin off something you said earlier about interacting with these people face to face and being in this space where you see, like, oh, have man. you seen what's the, I would like to hear like a positive story. So have you seen when you go and you talk to these kids, have, well, maybe they're not reading your books because maybe they're adult romances, but have you had the opportunity? to speak with, you know, people who have read your books, maybe even specifically the queer book, like say, like, I have seen myself Thank you. And is there like a story about that? Because I feel like we should end on a brighter note than the the book club lady who just wants to fight with people. Right. So yeah, I have,
2: I have had a lot of generations enjoy going into the schools, despite like all of that conflict. I've had several interactions where I've sort of been able to by watching their facial expressions is I'm feeding pick out like the budding writers in the crowd, which that's always fun. Because when the teacher's like, okay, you need to ask questions. You're getting points for this. A lot of them are just like, boom. But the ones who want to write or who are already writing are so excited to like raise their hand and be like, Oh, how do you do this? Or how did you get this particular book published? Or what do I need to do to get an editor? Like all these different questions so that's the whole point of it to like open up their eyes to the possibility of that and so when I see that spark happening like that's always awesome like that's the best that makes going into the schools worth it but I think when it comes like specifically to the queer books right around the time that Can't Resist Her was getting ready to come out last year I was at an event at like a like a park and this was a Juneteenth event it was thrown by several radio stations, sort of in conjunction with each other. And I went with the author, Teresa um, Hodge. I've known her for over a decade now, and she's like the best. She was like, "Well, I'm gonna do this thing, the radio station, like the a challenge, totally come." And I'm like, "Okay, sounds like fun. We'll do that." It's like an all day um, sort of festival where they had all the tents set up, and like you could get like a snow cone, one booth, and like a cool t-shirt with like a fist on it the next booth and then so they had sort of vendors of every stripe out there. Now at the time I signed up for it um, I didn't know that it was like gospel themed and that like Donnie McClurkin was going to be there but it was like by the time I found that out I was like well I'm, I'm already in so I went kind of not expecting what it was going to be like Um, and I mostly had like copies of Carolina Built because that was kind of the expectation. But I had like, a few early copies I can't resist her. That kind of, like, squirreled away in my box, like, in case I see somebody who looks like they might be interested, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just going to give a few away. And so somebody came up to my table. I'm not sure how they identified. Like, to me, they read them, but I'm not sure how they identified. They didn't tell me, like, their pronouns. They just told me their name. And they were kind of looking at the table, looking at all the information that was there about Carolina built. but I could see their eyes kind of going to the side. So the little pile of can't resist her. And they were like, what's that? And I you know, went off to my, you know, spiel about what it's about and like, you know, let them like look at it and stuff. they were like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is just the kind of story I want to read. Like, if there's nothing like this out there. Like, when does this come out? And I was like, oh, well, you know, it comes out next month, but you can have it. And the look on their face was like pure gold. Like, <gasps> give me some. You're going to give it to me for free? And I was like, absolutely. I'd love to sign it for you. Like, what's your name? And so they gave me their name and I signed it for them. And they were just kind of clutching it to their chest as they walked away. And that was like the best, the best feeling. In this crowd, of a lot of like, you know, black Christians, you know, getting all excited about Donnie McClurkin, and we fall down, but we get up and all that. That whole fervor going on, this person was able to sort of spot me in the crowd and find some, you know, like they found me. And they found something that reflected their own experience in, like, the least likely place. And I was, like, so happy about that. Like, that just kept running for days. I was so excited that they got it. And I just, like, that's the kind of thing that I love. And I've had a lot of interaction like that since then, especially with the college kids when I talk to them. Even if I'm talking about Carolina Built, like at least one of them in the classroom is like holding up this book. Like, I've got this book. It's great. Like, when is the next one coming out? And I'm like, I'll send some to your professor so they can have them. But it's just like, it's just like the best feeling that it reaches beyond kind of the way that people interacted with me in romance to begin with. Romance readers are just, they're just the jolliest bunch. They are just really cool people. They're so fun. Every romance convention I've ever been to has been a party. So romance readers on the whole are pretty awesome but these readers who for so long haven't been able to find what they really really wanted are not only awesome and happy but appreciative and it's like a whole other level of like how excited they are about it and i just love it like i'm gonna keep doing this forever Like I'm i'm there i don't have any more straight romance and like this is the vibe <laughs> from now on like, I'm already working on the next series. It's coming out. I'm starting
0: with the next series in October. Oh, yeah. So again, we're going to keep it going. So yeah. the Can't Resister is like a duology, and then you're going to be starting a whole new yes. one in October. Cool. And I do kind of yes. like the mm-hmm. full circle comes full circle that you're back at this sort of Christian gospel inspired event. And that's where you find your people. That's re- right. <laughs> right. Well, we've <laughs> always been here. Yes. Well, yes, that's also true. So, but that's a whole other, that's a whole other discussion. But, um, so we always like to wrap up and you may have already kind of done this and we like to usually wrap up with what we're reading. Um, so I'm working on another historical fiction proposal
2: uh, actually about Mrs. Larry's great niece who became the first black chief of staff at the VA Medical Hospital in DC. Oh, cool. And she was an alumnus of Dunbar High School. So I'm actually reading I'm actually reading Alison Stewart's book, First Class, Our Nation's First Black High School, which is the book that she wrote about of our high school because her parents went there. It's about 10 years old. It came out like 2013, but I'm reading it now because it's related to um, the story that I'm writing. And I'm just nerdy and interested in things like this as like a history nerd. So like I read stuff like this, like people read novels and I'm like deep into it. I'm like highlighting it and stuff. And like, so far, it's really, really good. And it's giving me a lot of context. Some of the things I'm going to have to write in order to tell Dr. Johnson's story. Um, so that's like what I'm reading now. What I most recently finished, though, is with ARC. This is the first time that a debut author had reached out to me to get a quote. And I was just like, oh my God, I am touched. Absolutely, I'll read your book. So she's a historical fiction author. Having her debut next January, 2024. Her name is Avery Cunningham. The book is called the mayor of maxwell street and so it's set in prohibition early 20s chicago and a host of black and uh characters of color and it's i wasn't one of was historical mystery not just historical fiction but this story is one of the best books that i have ever read it was fantastic it was 500-something pages, and I was locked in the whole time. I think i my speech trying to solve the mystery. And just the way that she painted that time period, the clothes, the architecture, everything that made the boring 20 special and then really solidified that it's happening in Chicago specifically, mm-hmm. it is a magnificent debut. I gave her, like, the most gushing quote. She told me right, but... Y'all got to get that book when it comes out. It's the mayor of Maxwell street and it's coming out from Hyperion in January of 2024. And the author is Avery Cunningham. So that's like the most recent thing that I
0: finished. Cool. We will make sure to include that in the show notes. Well, thank you again for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. We always like to, where can people find you on the internet? I know you're on Twitter. You mentioned that. So where are like your socials? Where would you like people to find and follow you? Well, I'm on Twitter. Most of the time, like, Honestly,
2: on social writing, <laughs> but mostly, if you're looking for me online, you're gonna find me on Twitter. I am at Kiana Wright on Twitter, and then I'm also on Instagram at Kiana Alexander Wright, and on TikTok, I am at Butterfly Tattoo, B-U-T-T-A-F-L-Y, and then Tattoo is spelled traditionally. And then my website is. Kiana Awesome.
0: Well, you can follow, you can find Black Chick Lit on Twitter at Black Chick Lit. We're on Instagram at BCL podcast and you can visit us at BlackChickLit.com. Um, any questions, comments, please send them to contact at com And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and Google Play. It helps others find the podcast. And of course, we have to thank Sweet45 for our theme, Jonesen. You can find them on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash sweet 45. That's S-U-I-T-E All All right. That's it. That's an episode. That was a lot of fun. Thank you again for coming to speak with us. Yeah. Happy Pride to you. Happy Pride listeners. Happy Pride everyone. Revolution, I Yay. guess. <laughs> thank you so much for having me on. It was so much
2: fun. Yes. I like gay all day, y'all. <laughs>
1: Well,
0: thank you. And we will make sure include links to the, your upcoming book in the show notes. And so if you are looking to find it, you will find it there. So thanks you all. Bye. Bye.